Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about the short story, How the Whip Came Back, originally published in Orbit 6 in 1970. And reprinted in the story collection, Castle of Days. Brandon, I'm not going to pull any punches on this one. I loved this story. This is probably the best story we've read so far. The Changeling might be up there as a contender. I loved Trip Trap, but How the Whip Came Back has got to be the best story we've read so far. I agree. For me, it's the first essential wolf story. You know, <laughs> were we to create a canon of, of Gene Wolf, this would be number one in reading order for, for anybody interested in getting into Gene Wolf. Whew, this is a good one. All right. Well, let's not waste any time. How about you uh, get us started going through the plot of How the Whip Came Back? How the Whip Came Back opens with Pretty Miss Bushnan contemplating the current fashion trends on display in her immediate surroundings. We're told she's in a hotel room in Geneva for a United Nations conference on human value. The hotel she's in is decorated with red acrylic paint and green dyed leather. She has a personal valet a robot named Sal, who is fashioned after a Louis XIV set of drawers. Yeah, there's some great detail in here. There's a couple of things I'd like to comment on. One, this this red and the green colors. There is quite a bit of intentional color symbolism going on in this story, and I imagine you will be pointing out the, the frequency with which we see the color red in particular uh, in this story. And there are a couple of things I just want to point out about what these colors are associated with. One, these are Christmas colors, um, which may become relevant later, may not become relevant later. We'll find out. But uh, these colors also are associated with both with martyrs and with slaves. This you'll see in, in Christian, especially medieval and, and late antique Christian art, that the color red will, will predominate in, in, in a mural or a fresco or a painting that is about a martyr, for example, and not just in the fact that there might be some blood, but it'll be there in like the form of like curtains or other background details. And the same will be true with green, which represents bondage, and in particular, really meaning having been freed from bondage. And so you'll see that in artwork depicting Christ interacting with slaves or advocating the freeing of slaves. But you also see this in, in some other ways where people are having conversion narratives or repentance narratives. And so I think it's really interesting to see these right here up front uh, at the top of this story. It's absolutely fascinating. It's so clear when you start a story pointing out colors, you're trying to get your readers to think about colors in, in terms of their sim- symbolic values. And there's um, some real reversals in expectation when it comes to the meaning of colors in this story. There's very little I want to read from this story because I would just end up reading the whole story out loud. So again, <laughs> this is a huge endorsement for our readers. Go read this story. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. I just want to point out one more thing here. Maybe, well, maybe two more things. Yeah, you mentioned that there's this Louis XIV secretary desk that is actually a robot named uh, named Sal. And uh, this name, I think, has actually a, a greater significance that I want to bring up in our discussion. But right off the bat, when I was just reading this, I thought, oh, that's cute. You mean Hal? In the, right. in the movie you just saw, like, Two, two weeks ago. Exactly, yeah. I was, I was thinking the same thing. Of course, it's Hal. <laughs> but I also feel obligated to point out that we meet Sal because the robot because it is bringing Miss Bushnan a Gibson martini. That's so right. That's and a Gibson, a I mean, I'm, I'm going to bring this up. A Gibson is just a martini with a pickled onion as a garnish. Yeah, a onion instead of an olive. That's right. <laughs> we find out that Miss Bushnan is just an observer at the Conference on Human Value. Uh, as Glenn pointed out, she's drinking a Gibson and she engages in some psychological projection with a Cassini salt dish shaped fountain. 
She thinks that the fountain is weeping for her and also that the male figure is handsome. And as she thinks this, the figure in the fountain blushes. Miss Bushnin daydreams about her husband, who, you know, from this reading, I think is in prison for some kind of identity-related crime. Her daydreaming is interrupted by Sal, who comes in to announce a visitor. We learn a little bit about Sal. Sal has some unremovable adware installed in its system and offers uh, to install a language package of Italian for $200. And here we also learn the crucial fact that Miss Bushnin does not own Sal. She's just leasing it. Yeah, and there's some other details here that focus on on money. There's a real obsession with money. We get an exact price for this the cost of this language program. We learn the details of the financial details of how she has a robot and there she also muses about how expensive the hotel room is that she's staying in and wonders where she would have to stay if she were to be paying for her own room. And so there's there's just a lot of little background details about money here just in one page. That's right. Miss Bushnin is, uh, as we'll come to find out, really obsessed with status. She primarily is motivated um, to see herself as others see her and doesn't really have uh, a vision of the world if people aren't looking at her. So the person visiting Miss Bushnin turns out to be the Pope, Honorius V. She has been sitting next to the Pope um, during this conference, and he is also an observer there. He's a short, stooped, older man. He wears a suit and tie. And by my reading, the tie is the only accessory in his outfit that really harkens to what we would think of as popish attire. He lights a big cigar, and Miss Bushnin is the picture of propriety and hospitality. The Pope wishes to speak to Miss Bushnin alone, not in the presence of Sal. Sal disturbs him, and he mentions to Miss Bushnin, about how people imagined robots in his day. They had a humanoid design. And she says in response to him, and I'm quoting here, I can't imagine why. You might as well shape a radio like a human mouth or a TV screen like a keyhole. Yeah, that's a what a, what a wonderful line. This passage is, is full of some beautiful stuff. You mentioned that the Pope is described as being stooped. And the line Wolf gives us is, he was an elderly man never tall and now stooped. I just loved that. Uh, just, it was a very beautiful, beautiful phrase for me. There was, uh, there's another line here too, where the, where the Pope is explaining his dislike of Sal, where he says, I have never had much sympathy with furniture that talks, which is exactly what Sal the robot is. But this line is almost verbatim taken from uh, the Roman writer uh, Vero, who uh, wrote a handbook on how to be a good, a good farmer. That's, That's terrific. It's yes. And, the, and, and what he's, well, the, and the line is about slaves, which is going to become relevant here as the story progresses, in which uh, he describes a slave as a tool that talks. Wonderful. Uh, Wolf clearly has read this text and is and is incorporating it here as a sort of a hint to the, the broader themes we're going to get into later. Oh, that's a terrific insight. During a natural pause in their conversation, Miss Bushnin reflects upon another conversation she had with the flirty French delegate. It was the Frenchman, we find out, who filled her in about the state of the Catholic Church and the Pope. Miss Bushnin was surprised that there was still a Pope at all. The Catholic Church, it's implied, is down both in membership and influence. There are very few people left who would admit to be, quote, believers. She thinks about her time as a student and how she was taught history by teaching machines that only required the students to answer simple questions. Positive reinforcement is given off 
by a machine with a, quote, rosy light. The machine gives off kind of a red glow when they get a right answer, which is the reversal of our current expectations. Miss Bushnan says to the French delegate that it seems to her that the whole thing, the church she means, should have been squashed a long time ago. Miss Bushnan herself is a figurehead for a charitable organization that clearly has an antecedent in some form of Christianity. Yeah, there's a, and there's, there's some interesting uh, elements here in this conversation that she's reminiscing about with the French delegate here, where it's very clear that for her, this charity work is, again, about the status that it gives her, that it's not actually about caring for other people. Uh, she says, um, I will quote what she says to the French delegate. I find I meet the class of people I want to meet in connection with this charity. I mean, my coworkers, of course. It's it's really rather exclusive. Clearly, she has she doesn't even mention actually the people who she's caring for, and when she accidentally maybe refers to them, uh, wants to make it clear that those are not the sort of people she actually wants to be hanging around with. And this, of course, is this is the exact opposite of what uh, Christ does. The Pope and Miss Bushnan resume their conversation. The Pope is being affable, and he says that he thinks maybe it's a good thing that the government resumed control of the Vatican, primarily because it would have been staffed with robots. Yeah, though theirs would have had stained glass in them. (laughs) Right, right, right. It's charming. I mean, this Pope is a great character. Now, Miss Bushnin is polite to the Pope, and she suspects that the Pope may be of low breeding of the lowest classes in Italian society. Yeah, there's a great. Uh, this is this is actually a scriptural allusion here that Wolf is making. She wonders specifically, or she she thinks his hands were gnarled and twisted like an old gardener's, as though he'd been weeding all his life. And there are actually several allusions here to scripture. For one, Mary Magdalene mistakes Christ for a gardener at mm. uh, John twenty fifteen. It's a very famous uh, incident in that uh, in that gospel. But then there's also the the parable of the barren fig tree at Luke thirteen six, uh, which is a big. This is a big parable for the people I study in late antiquity. And and this is the parable in which a gardener who uh, is a slave convinces his master to give an unproductive fig tree one more chance, give it one more season. And then if it's still not bearing fruit, you can you can chop it down. This is a very important line for the people I study, the, the bishops in particular whose sermons I read uh, for part of my day job, uh, usually think of Christ actually as, as this gardener. Mm. Um, and I, you know, we have seen before in the Changeling that uh, Gene Wolfe has a real good grasp on uh, on medieval Christian th- <laughs> uh, thinking about sure even does. such things as frogs. Right. So um, I wouldn't be surprised here to to, to see that, uh, that that this is what he has in mind when he's making this uh, this use of this gardener. Sal interrupts the conversation between the Pope and Miss Bushnan in order to let Miss Bushnan know that she has a phone call. The call, which is essentially like a Skype call or something to that effect. I just want to point out one thing here. He just calls this a phone. And you can make all kinds of predictions about technology, but you can't always expect language to advance with the technology. And I just wanted to point out how great it is that he just calls it a phone because we still call our phones phones, even though they're $1,000 computers that are portable and we carry them around. Yeah, that's a great point, Brandon. In fact, I actually didn't really even occur to me that that was going on because the idea of having a video conversation with somebody on your phone is, I mean, this is something we do every day. I did it this morning. Right. Right. And so, but you're right. Of course, in 1970, this would have been, this would have been almost a jarring thing for a reader. And so you're right. This is a brilliant use of the word phone, both to have that effect and also to have this timelessness. Yeah, I really love it. Uh, But it turns out that the Russian delegate is on the phone. She wants to invite Miss Bushnin to a dinner on Tuesday night. 
so Miss Bushman and the Russian delegate talk about the Russian delegate's speech that she had given at the conference. The topic of the speech was roughly restoring economic value to human life. Miss Bushman is, again, polite with the Russian delegate, but in her mind, she found the speech personally distasteful, particularly the references to Hitler's gas chambers. The speech, she felt, could be boiled down to the following point. If people have no value alive, they might as well be made into soap. Yeah, this uh, this is a real gripping moment. This is kind of where we're starting to see, we start to see where the story is going here. And there's some great details about this Russian delegate. Um, we learned that she she had been an actress once, and she's a, she's a beautiful woman, and she has gotten where she is today, her position in the government, because of her celebrity. And as you say, she's giving speeches now about putting dollar signs basically on on human beings, um, all of which all of these two, this combination of these two things seems rather, rather prescient. Yeah. And there's one more detail here that I want to point out. It's, it's of no relevance to the plot. So I, I don't I don't expect you, that you're going to bring it up. But <laughs> this is the sort of sort of little thing that I like to, to notice. There's a, a mention here to France losing its African colonies. Where right. We're told that this happened over 50 years ago. So that would place this story around 2010 so it'd be mm-hmm. contemporary to the world that we're in right now and uh, you know frankly i'm not i'm not sure that the language of this russian delegate speech is really all that be all that out of place actually right now in our politics i don't think so this is one of the most relevant short stories i've read uh from kind of this era of science fiction so the russian delegate brings the conversation back to the dinner on tuesday and she persuades miss bushnan to come by telling her that she has to come because the french delegate is the one who really wants her there the call ends and miss bushnan and the pope continue their conversation the pope tells miss bushnan that the observers will be voting on the matter at hand and All of the nations are anxious to pass this motion, which is essentially the question of whether or not slavery should be legalized once again. Yeah, we're we're several pages into the story now, and we only now do we actually find out what the matter actually is. This is again one of these these brilliant wolf hallmarks of of burying the detail, making us want to find out what is it that they're actually talking about. What is he actually writing about? (laughs) Right. But but with such compelling prose and the kind of way he dances around topics, he draws readers so deep into his world. Oh, absolutely. And if I had picked up this story and on, you know, the third or fourth paragraph, there had been a, so as you know, Mr. Pope, we've all been talking about this very important issue of, and then it's all just laid out for the reader. I would have put the story down. Yeah. Wolf never does that, which is why he can be, he is so captivating. Absolutely. The citizens of all the nations have surrendered their faith in church and charity, as the Pope puts it, and they have placed it in the government instead. Now, Ms. Bushnan gets another phone call. It's the American delegate. She lets him know, the American delegate, that she knows why he's calling. It's to ensure that the observers vote the right way, that they represent the interests of their government. And we learn a lot from this phone call. The slaves are to be taken from prison and leased out to private citizens in order to give these private citizens back a measure of control that has been lost from their lives. The government could also use the economic relief that legalizing slavery would bring upon them. The Russians, it turns out, had a lot to teach America and have usurped the U.S.'s position as the biggest global superpower, it seems. It would be bad for Ms. Bushnan and her organization if she doesn't vote in support of the motion. Her organization could lose its tax-exempt status. 
But if she votes in support, she could lease Brad, her husband, back, and they could guarantee that. Yeah, there's some there's some really great stuff from the the U.S. delegate here in this in this phone call. He has this this line that I just love, where he says, "We used to believe in job security for everybody and a wage based on classification and seniority. That was what we called free enterprise, and we were proud of it." And I think this is a real um, scathing critique of of capitalism from Wolf here, seeing it as a racket. Basically, that yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a scheme. There was nothing free or enterprising about it, but that's a scheme where you make money based on some kind of random or perhaps inherited often classification of your value and how long you have been at it. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it's so subversive. And Russians are at this point in American history, a real frightening threat. To yeah, we're, many citizens. We're at the height of the Cold War here in 1970. And he's basically saying, well, this is the America where people no longer look out for one another, and we're as bad as the Russians. And the reality is, is our, our kind of current um, political landscape isn't too far from this at all. So I'd like to read Miss Bushnin's response to the American consulate's last offer, the offer to lease her her husband for $5,000 a year. Um. I want to read it in full. I think it's terrific stuff. She says, you think that this is going to help Brad and me, and that because of that, I'm going to consent to your selling Americans you don't want, selling them to die in somebody's minds. You are wrong. This is going to ruin whatever may be left between Brad and me, and I know it. I know how Brad is going to feel when his wife is also his keeper. It will strip away whatever manhood he has left, and before the five years are out, he'll hate me just as he will if I don't buy him when he knows I could. But you're going to do this thing, whether the organization I represent favors it or not. And to save this organization for the good it does now and the good it will do among the slaves when you have them, I am going to vote for the motion. It's a chilling speech. Yeah, she's going to vote yes to reinstituting slavery in America. For self-sacrificial reasons. I mean, she's a monster. Yeah, absolutely she is. There's a before we move on, there's just some there's some other stuff I want to bring up about what the the delegate, the US delegate says to her on the phone when he's kind of pitching her this idea. Mm-hmm. You know, cuz clearly he 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 knows he has to talk her into it that something about her business of being in in charity is going to make her hostile to the notion of of slavery and so he he wants to he wants to talk her into it. And he says people like the idea of having slaves. Robots have gotten us used to it. And this is something I'm going to want to bring up in the discussion. So I just want to bring up the the line here uh, where we find it. But he goes on to say, what's more, it's a link with the past at a time when too many such links are phasing out. And let me do that actually with uh, without the pronoun. What's more, slavery is a link with the past at a time when too many such links are phasing out. This I just read this news article 10 days ago about why we shouldn't tear down Confederate statues. It's the exact exact same line, but using that pronoun, not saying that these things are about slavery, saying that these things are about links with the past, and links with the past are important. Were I to really write about this story, my topic of interest would be Wolf's handling of traditions and what traditions are meaningful and ought to be practiced by communities, maybe large communities, maybe small communities, and what traditions and what beliefs about the past ought to die. And and we should also note that this is also kind of at the height of the, the civil rights movement as well. There's quite a lot still not 
concluded when it when it comes to civil rights in 1970. And this story also addresses all of those things by, I don't know, who's reading these science fiction magazines? It's probably not people who are experiencing many civil rights violations, though it's hard to know without getting membership roles of, um, you know, orbit in the 1970s. This is a challenge to his readers. Absolutely. Yeah, he is throwing down a little gauntlet here. He's asking people to do some some self-reflection. Because you're right, the people who would be reading this story, um, and frankly, us too, Brandon, you and me, are, are people who are never going to face this. Right. This, this, uh, this, this, the potential of be, becoming enslaved because we, we're in jail. Satisfied that Miss Bushnan will vote the right way. Uh, her call with the American delegate ends, and the Pope is a little shocked by what he heard. He says that he'd never be able to vote in favor of the motion. He might abstain, though. And Miss Bushnan implies, without outright saying so, that she has lied to the American delegate in order to have the most impact with her no vote. The Pope is grateful for this lesson in humility he has learned by underestimating the childish Miss Bushnan. Yeah, that's a line that uh, I'm going to bring up again in the discussion. I want to point out here, Brandon, a line that um, actually is, comes the Pope uh, gives before the U.S. delegate's phone call, but is, is relevant here now that we sort of know what the actual issues at stake are, where the Pope is at first trying to, he's trying to present a unified front against slavery with Ms. Bushnan and the, the organization that she represents. And he has this great, this great line where he says, if we oppose them, we will be raising the standards about which all the millions who detest the idea and all the millions more who will come to detest it when they see it in operation can rally. That he, for him, you know, this is this is a. Um, uh, I'll, I'll use the word crusade here. That this is this is a moral issue that he needs to use all the weight, all the authority, all the moral authority that he has in the world, no matter how degraded that is, how how much that has dwindled from its height. That that is his his fundamental responsibility, and and so this is going to color then his conversation here with Miss Bushnan. Yeah, about absolutely. How to handle this. Um, and I and I did leave out that bit about how the Pope really does believe that this is. This is the final stand. That he is the one standing between slavery being legalized in the world and at least creating a position for people to uh, stand upon when they oppose it with him. And Miss Bushnan's organization ought to do the same thing. They're a charity, um, and their idea of charity comes from his church. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. really, uh, it's 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 hard to remember. I think even living in in. Uh, you know, 2017, that a lot of these ideas about the West started and, and grew out of the Catholic Church's work in their belief that, you know, they could, I don't know, raise the standard of living or make people's suffering bearable. To act morally was a way you could choose to be in the world. And now we have charities for all different sorts of things that are, some are secular, some are religious-based. Um, but I think Wolf in this story is making a real point about um, charities that aren't rooted in the love for the other. So Miss Bushnan pushes the Pope to ensure that he will not be at the assembly on Tuesday. He assures her that he won't be able to make it because he has to perform the funeral rites for the last nun. We're given an indication that much has changed in the church's traditions, and the Pope explains to Miss Bushnan his difficulty in getting women to, quote, take the veil. It would be, he says, as if they tried to bring the Kyrie back to the Mass. To me, this is like the lightning strike indicator of what the world has become, when 
kind of one of the most beautiful liturgical prayers the church has ever created, the Kyrie eleison, which is Lord have mercy. It's a Kyrie eleison, Christos eleison, Kyrie eleison. It's Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And, and what it is is just a cry out to have mercy because there is so much that cannot be done. Even if you are trying to fix the wrongs or ameliorate suffering or act morally in the world, there is too much beyond the work of any person or organization to do. And so it's really a cry from the depths of hope. And to remove this from the mass or to remove it from Christianity is a really <laughs> kind of crazy indicator of the state of the world in the um, that Wolf is trying to convey to us through this story. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, mercy is a central, perhaps the central value of Christianity. Uh, it's It's always has struck me as being the heart of Christ's message, right? It certainly underlies the golden rule, which is the thing we are told supplants all other rules. It is the rule. It is the golden rule because it is the last rule that we have to follow. And in particular, Catholics practice uh, something that they call works of mercy or something that are called works of mercy. And these are derived from uh, uh, the Gospel of Matthew from, uh, from chapter 25. And these works of mercy include being kind to prisoners and redeeming slaves. These are commandments of Christ. These are things that we have to do. The commandments of Christ are not mistreat prisoners and turn them into slaves. It's right. be kind to prisoners and free slaves. So the, the loss of the Kyrie here, I think, suggests um, uh, even a turning away from these values by the church itself at some point, though clearly we see the Pope here embracing the, the, the mercy The Pope is trying to bring these traditions back, but one of the ways in which the world has rejected the church, and, and, and perhaps we get the sense in this tiny little section of world building that the church in an attempt to bring people back has been willing to change so many of its traditions, including getting rid of these unpopular, really challenging parts of the mass that are asking practitioners to say, we need more than me to fix this problem. Mm -hmm. I'm not enough. And what we're doing is not enough. Yeah, there's a real theme here in the story. Uh, we haven't been pointing it out quite as much, but there's a real theme here in this story where Wolf is actually taking some recent choices made by the Catholic Church. He is he has some issues with them. He he is taking the church to task here. And and specifically uh he has in mind here the Second Vatican right. Council, mm -hmm. um, which happened, you know, only a few years actually before this story. This is this is the reason you can go into a Catholic church today here in Philadelphia and hear a mass in English rather than Latin, for right. example. And the crux of, of the Second Vatican Council was so many people are turning away from the church. We need to change a lot of our traditions in order to make it easier f for people, to make the religion more accessible, to make it right. not work that you have to do. And Wolf clearly objects to this. And it's brought up explicitly in the text um, when you were uh, recapping earlier about about Ms. Bushnan reminiscing on her days at school, where we learned that she studied history at Radcliffe. We learned there that, that she actually thought that the Pope John XXIII was the last Catholic Pope. That is the Pope who had presided over the Second Vatican Council, who already actually was dead by the time Wolf wrote this story. So Wolf is <laughs> writing this story while there is, in fact, already another pope. But I think this is he's really saying here that this, this kind of dumbing down of the faith, this idea to make it kind of hip and popular, is undermining it and is really presenting it as something of a, of a slippery slope, that if we start taking away the Latin Mass, if we start taking away other features, what's not to stop us from even just taking away the central moral mission of the Church at some point just to make it more appealing to people? So the Pope's conversation with Miss Bushnan ends, and he leaves satisfied that Miss Bushnan 
will do the right thing. <laughs> yeah, right before he leaves, there, there's one other thing he says that I want to point out here. He indicates, there's actually two things the Pope does. One, when he says that he's going to go back to, to Rome mm-hmm. uh, to preside over this funeral, he is going to, that, for him, that's going to be something of an excuse for him to abstain. To abstain from the vote. Because that's he right. can't bring himself to, to carry out the lie that Ms. Bushnan is, is doing, even as he acknowledges the sort of realpolitik of what she's doing. He can't bring himself to do that. And one other thing that he says to her here is he, he points out that Christianity thrived and perhaps even exists only because of its attractiveness to slave societies, in particular the slave society of the ancient Mediterranean. And he explicitly says, maybe it will do so again. Right. And he gives a timeline, I mean, in like 50 or 100 years or something like that. And and one other thing the Pope does before he leaves is indicate um, his suspicion that Miss Bushnan could make a great nun someday. Someday. Uh, but we know she's a monster. So <laughs> Sal, Sal comes back in and uh, he remarks, well, he, the robot, the desk remarks that it finds the Pope creepy and untrustworthy. And Miss Bushton's response is that the Pope is harmless. And she asks Sal to bring her another drink. And here we're kind of rounding in on the closing of the story. So I'm going to read the end of it, as I'm finding you must do for these (laughs) Gene Wolfe stories. So here is the end of How the Whip Came Back. Tuesday would be the day. The whole world would be watching, and everyone in the conference would be in red and green. But she would wear something blue and stand out, something blue and her pearls. In her mind, Brad would be somehow waiting behind her, naked to the waist, his wrists in bronze manacles. I'll have them made at Tiffany's, she said, speaking too softly for Sal, busy with the shaker in the kitchen to hear. Tiffany's, but no gems or turquoise or that sort of junk. Just the heavy, solid bronze, with perhaps a touch here and there of silver. Sal would make him keep them polished. She could hear herself telling her friends. Sal makes him keep them shined. I tell him if he doesn't, I'm going to send him back. Just kidding, of course. What a beautiful passage. There's a lot going on here. Let me, I want to start with the color symbolism here, uh, which you know, we all kind of op- opened with. Blue is an important color in Christianity, especially late antique and medieval Christian art. Uh, the Virgin Mary is always depicted in blue. That's how mm-hmm. you know that's the Virgin Mary and no, uh, no other person. And the mention of the pearls here is very interesting. The, there's the, the parable of the pearl, of course, and this is at Matthew thirteen forty five and 46, uh, which equates a pearl with the kingdom of heaven. That's right. And so I think this is, there might be something meaningful here. It's, it's hard to know, but it will, I think we'll get to it in our discussion here in a, in a matter of, of, of moments. But I also really like in this passage that you read, Brandon, how she is fantasizing about the possession of Brad as a slave, as a, a great status symbol for her among her friends. And in this, she's doing this even as she's putting on pearls, right? Which is another such symbol. It's also a status right. symbol for us, a, st- a symbol of, Here, of wealth. Here's a hint to our listeners uh, about relationships. If your primary relationship is with another human being, um, then it's not with the friends you're bragging to them about. It, it happens like when you're dating somebody and it becomes serious that you talk less about the person you're with to your friends because the person you're with is who you're talking to more. Um, and it's always a psychological shift. And, and it should definitely happen by the time you're married. That the person you're married to is your primary kind of relationship. Um, and it's not saying you can't have friends. But when 
you are thinking, and here we have this in our society problems with like Facebook and how am I going to post this and Instagram and going out to brunch and a simple breakfast with your loved one can turn into a social event um, for your imaginary friends. And here we have Miss Bushnin um, exhibiting the psychology that kind of rules our current social landscape. And I find it absolutely fascinating. Yeah, the commodification of everything. Everything is a status symbol. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly what's going on here. And and that being held up is a clear sign of moral bankruptcy, of having having lost mercy as a as a value. Or even yeah. grace. I mean, yes, grace right. Is the, the gift freely given. I mean, you did get us you she's buying she's fantasizing about buying her husband, but not redeeming him. All the way from the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, the story of the Bible is about the redeeming of the kin. Um, and uh, redemption, I know, is a, is a loaded word today in our society, but all it meant was the buying back of the freedom of the person. Yes, it literally means like empt to buy, like, uh, right. uh, you know, caveat emptor, buyer beware. It's to buy back, re-back, to, right. to buy someone back by someone again after they've been enslaved. Right, That's and the grace of God is to buy them back not for slavery, but to be free. Right, and Christ Christ is the Redeemer because all of us are enslaved to our sins. Right. right. So this is this is fundamental to, to, to Christianity here right from and, the, the start, which is actually what the word fundamental means. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and this is a story about uh, slavery without redemption, and it is terrifying. Not just as from the point of view of Christian theology, from the point of view of just anybody who's interested in the suffering of others. Yeah, this is uh, this is perhaps the most horrifying dystopian story I've ever read, yeah. even though it doesn't present itself at all, certainly not at the beginning, as being That's, even such a story. It's got a beautiful sheen on it, um, yeah. not just in terms of prose, but in, in every description we're given is something of beauty in the world. And, and just there's a rot underneath the beauty that we're given in this story. Well, Brian, it sounds like we're, we are starting to segue into our discussion. So I'm going to suggest that we go ahead and move into our uh, red acrylic and green leather parlor <laughs> and, uh, and talk about some of the issues here. I have uh, a Gibson uh, ready-made. <laughs> I know. I, 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 will, I will say that I did consider making Gibson martinis. Yeah, me too. I, know. I was like, I don't want to buy pickled onions, though. I'm never going to do anything with them. <laughs> right. That was, exact, that, was the, that was the stumbling block for me as well. So I have, uh, this is, a, I think, as we said, at the top that we both think that this is a fantastic story. This story is mm -hmm. the best we've read so far uh, in the Wolf Corpus, and there it is jam-packed full of things, full of stuff, full of topics to talk about. Mm -hmm. And I have four things that I want to discuss. One of them is maybe a little less significant, but I don't want to start with that one. The one I want to start with, actually, Brandon, is this idea of robots as agents of dehumanization. I think we'll start with the sci-fi stuff and we'll move into the religious stuff. So, you know, we find out from the U.S. delegate, right, that, that owning robots has primed people for owning other humans. And if that's so, why actually does Wolf have the robots take on the form of furniture rather than of people and you know because he could have um, and he also you know i also there he, he he tells us that having them look like humans the pope says this that if the robots had looked like humans it would have made people uncomfortable uh, well right he's talking about like the uncanny valley which is when something is close to our experience of reality but misses the mark i think wolf loves this idea in general uh, we've come across it in other of his stories but the pope i think specifically says when they're shut down they'd look dead 
Yeah, that's that's right. That for him, that's the real objection is that they would look like dead people. But I just wonder, just thinking from a story writing right. standpoint, like why not then actually have if the point one of the points you're trying to make is that hey, robots are going to make us get used to the idea of slavery. So we should really think about that before we start making them look like people. Why not actually have them look like people? Have the Pope object to them there? And I'm not trying to suggest that Wolf has maybe perhaps missed something here. I'm wondering, really, genuinely wondering, yeah. what do you think Wolf is up to? With so I think this there's move? two things going on. One, one just occurred to me now as you were asking the question is Wolf is kind of close, oddly close to robotics in his chosen profession. Yeah, his day job is to, to think about these things. Right. And so it turns out in, in production lines, robots don't look like people. They're an arm or a thing. They're just the thing that does the task automatically. To give them an artificial intelligence is maybe a different path to go down, but I think he's just saying, let's just give the desk the personality of a secretary or a valet. Another thing that occurs to me, specifically in um, as it relates to these robots being furniture is there is an actual psychological effect and wolf could not have known about this but this is the kind of thing um, people credit with proust all the time is discovering all of these crazy psychological uh, they're not crazy but these psychological principles that have only recently been proved by science just by observing maybe your own mental state or that of others and there is an effect you and i live in a city um, where there are many homeless people and a study has been done where walking by the habit of walking by people or seeing people that you are not treating with regular human dignity your brain responds to them actually no differently than than if you were shown a picture of furniture so they literally become furniture of the world and whether wolf is observing this personally in his own life as he's maybe going to work in chicago or wherever he's visiting um, and seeing human workers on production lines or this and that and how they are no more than the aids of robots now in these factories mm-hmm. or he's his own experience and his own maybe crushing guilt over ignoring the suffering of the homeless in his community um, to think of them as less as human he's onto something that has recently been proven to be a psychological effect of encountering people and regularly treating them as less than human. Yeah, that's actually a really great observation. That, that was not the answer I had, I had, I had thought up, and I'll, I'll give you what that answer was in a minute, but <laughs> I just want to comment on yours first, which is to say that, yeah, I think actually that's really quite clear that that's what's, what Wolf is doing. I mean, this is where he, when he invokes the Roman writer Vero's line about them, about slaves as tools that speak or hear the line as furniture that speaks, you know, this is something that we find replete in the literature of this slave holding society this slave society of the, the ancient experiences Greeks and the ancient human Romans. experiences of people who owned slaves and slaves who had a lot more dignity than the slaves of America's own history. Yeah, in fact, and I'm thinking specifically of this uh, particularly interesting and notable line in one of the poems of the, the really the great Roman poet Horace, who it writes about how he's he's sad about something and he's taking a, con- uh, a contemplative walk all by himself. He's totally alone. And then in a later line, he mentions that his slave does something for him. <laughs> sure. So he's next from our perspective, he is not alone. He's with another person. But from his perspective, there were no other people around him. There was just this slave, this tool that gets him things, this piece of furniture that does things for him, that makes him a drink. That has arms and legs, but not really a mind. And maybe it can speak intelligibly, but you know 
underneath it, as we're told in this story, beneath the false metal castings and and like drawer drawer castings and things like that, is really just the guts of a machine. Yeah. So I think I think that's I think you've definitely hit on something that Wolf has in mind here, and I think that might even be more what he has in mind here than what I'm going to suggest. But but what I was thinking was that um, this has sort of it's less that owning servants has. Uh, primed people for owning other humans um, and more that the sort of rampant materialism has has made people value possessions as status symbols um, yes. and that this notion yeah the status symbols this is really primed people like Ms. Bushnan and her friends to uh, to own other humans as a status of their wealth and power. And and the story ends with that. Absolutely. So, I mean, Brad becomes um, reduced to his manacles. The symbol of his servitude is really just his his manacles that she for, is going to force him to keep yeah. polished in order to keep her friends thinking, oh, isn't she just the wittiest woman? Right. It's not even about the fact of his shackles. It's about her ability to talk about them, uh, to, to, to share the fact that she owned, that she has the... That she right. Has and he's reduced friend. to a material, truly. And, and it's the same way with the Russian delegate speech. I mean, she finds the Russian delegate speech distasteful because the Russian delegate is reducing people to bars of soap. And she even has this little moment of reverie, which is a a term Wolf uses for her daydreams, where she thinks about rubbing Brad's soap on her body and doesn't find it funny. But Brad using you know, for lack of a better term, soap to polish his manacles is an amusing idea for her. So I think let's move on to my my second question here, a second topic here, Brandon. This is this notion of of socialism and capitalism, or perhaps even to put it in Cold War terms, socialism versus capitalism. And this story, as we pointed out, was written at the height of the Cold War. And it really takes to task both of these kind of Politico-economic systems, both socialism and capitalism. And I was actually a little bit confused about, you know, I could see critiques of both systems here, but I, it was unclear to me what exactly it is then that Wolf is advocating, if if anything. I mean, is he advocating some sort of third way? And if so, you know, what is it? And, and here, let me point out, there's a line that we didn't we didn't do in the recap that I want to, although we mentioned the content, but I actually want to read, read the line here uh, just to, to sort of set the stage for what I'm getting at. And this is when the French delegate is... is talking to her about talking to Ms. Bushin about the charity she works for. And he says, ah, it is kind of you to work for charity and especially for one that does not pay you. But is it necessary? This is no longer the 20th century after all. And the governments take care of most of us quite well. There's something empty there for Wolf, right? right. As you pointed out. Yes. Um, it's, I, yeah. Works without faith. And without love. I mean, the, the clanging symbol here is, is Ms. Bushnan's speech, which is both duplicitous and self-serving at all times. I think Wolf is advocating for a third way in this story, and and it is for him as a Catholic. It is being a devout Catholic who whose allegiance is to the faith first, um, and that's what jumps out to me at this story. And and we get this weird thing with Brad is identified as Aaron in the trial, and it's this big betrayal for Miss Bushnan. There's a little a little bit of subtext in this story about identity. And I think one way we form our identities is by controlling the way others perceive us, which is what Miss Bushnan does. I think it's what Brad does that ultimately gets him in prison by taking somebody else's name. But another way is is by acting out of um, an imitation of another, uh, what you'd call like the wise one. This is <laughs> This is kind of the Aristotelian character formation so you have like identity we've talked maybe about this in other stories but um your 
real identity is revealed by your character, which is how you act actually when put into a, a situation. And so here I think we're playing a little bit again with moral actors being given status based on their perceived activity versus what it takes to be a moral actor. And I think Wolf is absolutely advocating for just being a moral actor without regard to how it's perceived. Oh yeah, that so that's a really great observation, and I and and listening to you uh, comment on this, Brandon, is I, I think helped me kind of see what it is maybe that Wolf sort of envisions. If if it, you know, sitting there, sitting around here in the late '60s, writing this story, living in a world where there, there's this sense that there are two ways the world can work: one is capitalism, and the other is socialism. And when Wolf is saying no thanks to either of them, and of course he's not alone there. Yeah, I mean, then, the American delegate outright blackmails. Miss Bushnan with losing her tax exempt status, which right. is like that comes up in the news all the time. Yes, absolutely. So I think here, what I think, as you point out, Brandon, that what Wolf is is really sort of suggesting here is that what's wrong with this dichotomy in the first place is that it is all material, and that of course, if we all actually. Um, if we can put the Curie Elysion back in our own lives, in our own personal, uh, our own morality, our own perception of the world, then we will prioritize the taking care of others in ways that neither capitalism nor socialism can really do because they're going to get bogged down with and do get bogged down with the kind of material bureaucracies and paperwork. I mean, you know, filing paperwork is what bureaucracy bureaucracies do. And, um, it doesn't matter what they ultimately allege to accomplish at the end of the day, the people who work for them, and this is no criticism of those that do, they are moving paperwork around in order to accomplish a certain task. And we live in a world where that's the way things do get done um, for better or worse. It's nightmarish to, I mean, this is Kafka's nightmare. (laughs) It's living in a world where this is all, there's no other recourse. The final authority is the bureaucrat and there's no appeal to any other type of authority in our society. And I think Wolf is playing with that idea a little bit in this story. Yeah, and it's. I think you, you've again now, Brandon. You've, you've really astutely pointed to something that exists even in this story that we don't. This story is about high politics. It's about this meeting in Geneva. It's a UN meeting. We we don't meet people. We don't meet heads of state here. We meet bureaucrats. Right. That all the people in this story they're are delegates. bureaucrats. Except they're sitting for at their the desk Pope. or they're hosting dinners or yeah. Yeah. So I think yeah, you I think that that's a real great observation uh, that you've made there. So I think we can we can chug right along here, Brandon, actually right. to to uh, to point number three or question number three. And this is something that's that's really um has bothered me since the, my first read of this story, even about a week ago in prep for our episode. Uh, and this is the Pope's decision to abstain from the vote. So the question that I have, actually, I have several questions. The first question I want to pose to you, Brandon, is why can't the Pope lie about his intention in order to use then the, the subsequent media spotlight to plead the moral case against slavery? The, the, pl- the exact plan Ms. Bushnan tells him she's going to do. Why can't he do that? Yeah, I want to point out first, for those who have foolishly decided to not read this story before um, finishing the podcast, that Miss Bushnan is playing a real um, duplicitous game here. She suggests that if they tell their um, respective leaders and delegates that they will not vote, because it has been announced that the observers will vote, it'll be easy to just say, well, we were never going to do this anyway, because the only people that knew has no impact on um maybe global affairs. But if she says she will vote the right way 
and you know the way the delegates wish her to vote, which is to legalize slavery, there will be a media show around how the observers voting because they have already built the foundation for this being a resounding success. And then she can vote no and become like the figurehead of this anti-slavery movement, um, which will definitely take place. But everybody needs there to be these um, representatives of your everyday Americans, which are the Pope, <laughs> Miss Bushnan, whose father was a government minister. He was mm-hmm. in the Department of Agriculture, and she's also very wealthy. And this is this is also, I think, Wolf's jab at how your everyday person is represented in news stories. Typically, um, we always want the best idea of ourselves represented on television and not what we really are. Um, and Miss Bushnan is kind of an Instagram ready <laughs> celebrity at this point. Yeah. So she, and she wants that she pitches to the Pope that he, he should get in on this plan. Right, he should they they should thing. do this together. And he said he, he can't, he says he can't do it. He won't do it. And he, is, he, he finds the whole idea morally repugnant. Right. And I'm, well, because so he's he's a you know I'm going back to Aristotle here, but this is the imitation of character. This is character is made in these decisions. This is who the Pope is. He's revealing his character to us. That even in something like this, a lie, a simple lie, is not worth telling. And what is worth doing instead? He's not abstaining just because he might have to lie in order to not vote. He's also administering the funeral rites of a person, the the doing good for the immediate person, I think in Wolf's view, and this is kind of a, a moral theory as well, is is always the right choice because you're doing good for yourself and for the other. And retaliating or being um, duplicitous in order to achieve maybe a more utilitarian outcome is always harmful, both to yourself and those who you're doing it on behalf of. And Miss Bushnin, Miss Bushnin's character is the utilitarian one who's willing to, on behalf of the slaves you'll make, she's fine with there being slaves because it will just give her more status as a moral actor. Yeah, so there's um, um, one point here. There's, there's two points I want to make here, Ben, based on what you've just said. But one of one of them is that I think that you and I have read the text a little bit differently, and I th- which is great. Great, and we can, I hope we so. Can, yeah. We can, yeah, we can get the wolf pack to weigh in here. But my reading of the text was that although I think everything that you say is right, that that he has this spiritual duty to take care to to oversee this funeral, no matter. Uh, the other cost, um, the, one of the major central figures of my historical research, a, a bishop of Vienne in uh, around the year 500, nearly loses his life, making exactly the same decision, knowing that he should get out of a dangerous situation, chooses not to because he has to preside over over a funeral. And I have written a lot of words about what a <laughs> well, uh, what an interesting choice that is that he made, what a tough decision, and how that's it's really representative of what's going on for bishops during the fall of the Roman Empire. So I don't disagree with your interpretation of that, of the moral issue there, but I don't think that that that's how the Pope presents it here. I think the Pope presents this as it's a justification that he can use to explain his his abstinence of, from the vote, uh, his abstaining from the vote, that really what it is is that if he wasn't going to have to lie, he would have stayed for the, the vote, but that he it's really the lie that, that bothers him. That was how I read the I, text. Well, I agree with you, I don't, I, but I think they are, for him, the same kind of issue as a, as a figurehead. What's interesting to me about this is his claim of learning humility from Miss Bushnan. And and what he's saying is he walked into that room 
underestimating her and thinking her to be kind of naive and childish. And he even says she's a child, though to him, uh, an old man. He could be very old because the nun who dies, he's very old in the story. And the nun who dies was of his um, mother's generation. And so we, you know, maybe people have a mildly extended life <laughs> in this world. It's not clear. It wouldn't be out of place in a speculative fiction story like this. But the way he learns humility from Miss Bushin is in his underestimating her naivete and, and her, her childishness. And, and her he expects her to be simple in her approach to this issue. And he expects her to be good. He thinks that anybody who would act in charity, charity being what it is in the Catholic Church as a part of historical Christianity, wouldn't do charity without first being good. And he's failed to recognize the status that Americans have bestowed upon her for running this charity. So so you suggest, uh, Brandon, that he that the Pope, in, in deciding to sort of go, to go preside over this funeral, is is choosing not to place the needs of the many over the needs of the, the one. I think that's my core argument. Yeah. yeah. So, but the question I want to ask, actually, or another question that I want to ask is, is this, is, is in fact the opposite true? Is in fact the Pope actually being the most utilitarian person in, in the room here? Because he talks about how um, he can imagine a future in which this new slave society, this global slave society actually helps spread Christianity, helps renew faith in Christianity. So is the Pope actually, does he actually want slavery to return so that Christianity will be renewed? And, and you know, not in a sort of cynical way, but obviously because he would value people's ability to enter the kingdom of heaven over their uh, material comfort, their personal liberty uh, while on earth. Is is that the choice he's making? Is he consciously making that choice here? I think there's some suggestion of it, and so I wanted your opinion on it. That's a wonderful question. That's a major question of this story, I think, is how the whip came back. I mean, I'm sorry to use the title here, but this is the question of the story. <laughs> Seth Green would love it. <laughs> <laughs> how the whip came back. Um, but that's the core question, right? Is like So Miss Bushnin is like saying, because this is going to happen anyway, the Pope is in the room. So sometimes when reading, and this is how close reading happens, is, is you have to keep track of all the details and this call. And it's um, there's a lot going on off screen that's easy to ignore when you're when you're focused on the text. But we have to remember that the Pope is in the room with Miss Bushnin as she gives her terrifying speech to the American delegate and suggests that because she knows these are not legally binding votes that the observers are giving, and because she can do more good than harm by voting yes, because she can help the slaves, she's going to vote yes. Now, the Pope hears all this, and the conversation they have afterwards, you know, suggests that he doesn't think that that's the right thing to do, and that um, Miss Bushnan convinces him that she just did that so that she could vote no to legalizing slavery as an observer and um, kind of raise the uh, flag for others who, who feel that it's a morally abhorrent decision. The Pope is satisfied by this. So this is, this is really the question. Does Christianity benefit from societies that are suffering? Yes, that's how it grew and that's how it, it spread across the world so quickly um, because it confronted the truth that people suffer 
regularly in in all classes and in all in all walks of life and that there are many forms of slavery that bind us to this world and it does offer what i like to think something like radical genuinely radical freedom which is something like self responsibility and that if you have you know like extra lumber so to speak you don't build a higher fence you build a longer <laughs> table right so i think the pope is genuinely he's humbled by miss bushnan um and he realizes he can't play that game he's the wrong person to play that game and he's willing to exit the situation what would he benefit by there being slaves when he's already kind of very old and might actually be the last pope if there are no orders of if there's no order of nuns you know who are the actors of charity in 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 the catholic church um they set up hospitals they do they do a lot of good they run schools orphanages you know i think we're given a picture here where 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 charity is is now hindered in the catholic church as well i don't really know what's all that to say <laughs> necessarily speaking but i do think i don't think the pope is is making the utilitarian choice cynically the way that Miss Bushnan is. If he is making the choice, it's kind of an unconscious decision. Hmm. And it's rooted in his moral knowledge uh, uh, that is a, a practice of Western, uh, of the great philosophies and great theologies of West Western civilization, that the doing good for the one is sometimes greater than doing good for the many. Yeah, I'm, I'm really... I don't know. I was going to say that I'm really torn, but I don't think that's quite true. I'm perplexed by the figure of the Pope here and this choice that he makes, this this refusal to lie in order to do exactly the thing that he says they should do, which is to be the rallying point for millions of people who already detest, and then the millions more who will come, who to, will detest come to detest this right. institution. All that would take from him is a simple lie to somebody the say the to to indicate that he will say yes to something to which he is actually going to say no when the time comes and he refuses to do that i am truly puzzled by that moment in the story and i i would i'm really eager to actually hear really quite eager to hear what people in the wolf pack have I, to I say i am as well because it is truly perplexing because part of the reason why the whip does come back is in fact the pope's inability to act in this way and I mean, that's the worst outcome. <laughs> yeah, really, right. Stories about the worst possible outcome for humanity. It is. Also, I just want to, I feel obligated here as well to point out that we have, we have now several times invoked, you know, perhaps the most famous line in all of Star Trek uh, to talk about this choice. And just to, to point out that, you know, the whole, I cannot lie no matter what stance is, is something that's attributed also to, to Vulcans in, in Star Trek. And I, I wonder if perhaps that was something that was on Wolf's mind. We've already seen how much Star Trek he has been watching. Yeah. I mean, and this comes back in a, in a major way for John Luke Picard, right? Which is, to, which is when he's, he's forced to tell a lie in order to, it's a, it's a brainwashing technique oh, basically. Right. And that, that's another, I mean, it's a great example of what, sure, all I have to do is this and then suffering will end. All I ha- all I have to do is say there are what like three lights or something instead of two. What, what what's what's the choice he makes? You're the bigger expert here. It's uh, there are four lights. There are four lights. Yeah, he says it much better than I, I apologize could to our to our um, big Star Trek fans. I'm a novice in the world. <laughs> all you have to do is tell a simple lie, and all of this goes away. And that's never never the real bargain. 
Yeah, well, this is this has been a real fruitful discussion for me, Brandon, here about the Pope's decision. And as I said, I'm I'm keen to hear what uh, what the Wolf Pack has to say. But I think it's time to to move on to the final, the fourth corner of our red and green parlor here. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, I have been known, I think, Brandon, uh, by you from time to time to ask a totally absurd question um, <laughs> that 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 you you may laugh in my face for asking this question, especially the way that I'm about to phrase it. But is Miss Bushnan the Virgin Mary? I mean. No. <laughs> <laughs> so the the rest of that sentence is uh, is Ms. Bushnan the Virgin Mary who will usher in the new birth of the church. And before you um, continue to dismiss me out of hand, let me make my case for this. I love this these cases because your readings of um, of 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 the you are much better at these religious uh, readings and interpretations of of Gene Wolfe than I am, and you've often shocked me with with your textual evidence. So I am excited <laughs> to hear where you're going with this. Well, so a lot of it rests on the color symbolism. Um, and in fact, it all it rests on two things: color symbolism and names, the name, meaning of names. Um, for one, you know, we do start out with Christmas colors, and although we pointed out that those there's more to those colors than just that they are Christmas colors, they are Christmas colors. And we end, uh, we open with that, we open with the Christmas colors, and we end with her in a blue dress, which, as I pointed out, is the color is the is not even just the color; it's the garment that Mary wears in Christian art. And already we have the theme here that we talked about just in our in our last discussion point about the Pope's abstaining from the vote is this question of a new birth for Christianity, a new birth for uh, for the Christian Church. And so to see here some bit of symbolism about the birth of Christ is happening here that we have the colors associated with Christmas and the colors associated with the Mother of Christ are the bookends of this story uh, is one point of evidence I would I would bring up. I also want to bring up again the name Sal, that although I do believe that this is in part a joke about 2001, A Space Odyssey, <laughs> uh, that Wolf would have seen just, a, I don't know, a week before writing this story. Yeah, 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 um, definitely. It is also short for Salvatore, which is the word for savior. So I think that there's already sort of introduced here just in the idea that that, that something that is a slave, that is described the way that someone who was um, a part of the society that Christ was born into describes slaves is named savior, I think might suggest some something here about the sort of salvational uh, nature of this story, that this and story is me, about salvation and let redemption. Let me interrupt you yeah. for one second uh, as you're going along this question. This is just an aside for our readers who have read much of Wolf. Robots have faith in Gene Wolfe stories, and that is a wonderful point. Whether or not human slavery returns in this universe, there is a class of slaves who maybe end up growing the church, and we do see that come back in Wolf's literature as a theme on many different occasions. And that is a wonderful point, Glenn. Thanks yeah. for bringing that up. Well, you're welcome. And I think it is, this, of course, is one of my favorite themes in Wolf is the, is the, the, the robots having faith, of course. And so I was very excited to see any sort of suggestion of that here. So now I want, I want to continue on with the names. And here's where I'm going to get a little, well, more than a little maybe absurd on you. Okay. Brandon. So I, I'm, I'm, I need you to rein me in here. So you we brought up, but we didn't really spend a whole lot of time on this the, uh, the story about Ms. Bushnan's husband, who is a guy named Brad, but who is actually named Aaron. It's kind of a throwaway detail. Uh, you have found some things there about the nature of identity that I think were really, uh, really uh, brilliant, really profound uh, insights. But I think there's some name symbolism that's happening here. For one thing, 
Aaron is the name of the brother of Moses, That's right? right? In 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 uh, the book of Exodus, he is Moses's voice. He's the voice of Moses, and and Moses is the one, of course, who liberates the Jews from their lives as Egyptian slaves. And the name Aaron means bearer of martyrs, and we have seen sort of red already introduced, kind of as this this color symbolism uh, for martyrs. So I think there's some some things going on here with this idea of of martyrdom here uh, that perhaps actually in some ways that the Pope is in, is maybe kind of martyring himself here by making this sort of strange moral choice or moral choice that I think is strange. Or anyway. Brad himself could also be kind of the first martyr, the first slave to be free as well. And and, and in fact, Miss Bushnin could be venerated in some way very far down the line when in fact Brad becomes the figurehead for this new movement. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what I was thinking. And 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 here's the final thing I'm going to say about name symbolism. Um, the name Brad, Brad actually means spike or nail, such as the, you know, spikes or nails used to to crucify Indeed. Christ. Yeah. And so knowing that Wolf Wolf does these things with names, I I'm not quite sure how to sew all of that together, but these were the sort of things that that I saw in the text that suggested to me that this story is not just about how the whip came back, but it's about how how faith, how mercy, how grace, how salvation, how redemption come back. That we are seeing here, along with the kind of a, a new birth of slavery, we are also seeing, we are going to see uh, in the sequel to the, the imaginary sequel to the right. story that no one ever wrote, the new birth of the virtues of Christianity, a new birth of the church. And that the, there is some of the symbolism here is pointing to this, I think. It's entirely possible. I mean, these stories are often accompanied, and by these stories, I mean, ones of redemption and salvation, which is being saved from calamity or catastrophe, are often often accompanied by the failures and corruption of mankind. And we're given a hint in this story, as we've brought up many times at this point, that uh, it doesn't matter what these observers do, this is going to pass. And the observers are kind of just a part of this uh, show, this circus that is going to accompany this vote. And there's wonderful redemption stories about people who have made decisions like this that they take lightly, and they are naive at the time, as the Pope suggests, Miss Bushnin is, who atone for their wrongdoing and in, in, in turn seek are seeking redemption from the slavery of their own guilt. Um, this is the exact plot of <laughs> the angel uh, by right. Joss Whedon. Um, but it's a classic story is people do wrong and are actually enslaved more by their wrongdoing than the being punished for the act they did. Um, and it's something that we who are often far removed from the, the difficult choices that many people have to make that lead them down paths of wrongdoing um, make forget that like people regret prisoners regret mm -hmm. <laughs> their choices but is miss bushnin uh, the virgin mary well we have miss right which is she's unmarried although she's divorced and she's looking to redeem in some sense her her husband who has fallen away she the color symbolism is there as you've mentioned I like to think, I mean, we read a story not too long ago uh, where you asked me a question of one of the main characters in that story was uh, the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. um, and this feels a little bit more like these are mocking, these symbols are more mocking the faith than um, bringing it to life. Although your reading is very compelling and it's 
it's all there, as you said, for, for this imaginary sequel to be about Miss Bushnin's redemption through the redemption of her own husband. And in, this is also a theme in the New Testament about how wives or brides are able to redeem their families through good works. So I think you're, you're absolutely right to point out that there is, there is nothing in the actual character of Ms. Bushnin that represents, resembles in any way um, the character of the Virgin Mary as she is presented either in Scripture or really like any kind of interpretation of Scripture. And so I think, so that's really where this is kind of an absurd thing for me to claim. Um, but I think that there's, I think there is still just another piece of textual evidence here where this is going on, which is that, again, maybe I think we might be reading the Pope here a little bit differently, where when the Pope says, as you point out, that Ms. Bushnan has has taught him humility. And then he kind of and then he goes away, he goes back to Rome to preside over this over this funeral. I read that line there as um, a smug indication of him seeing through her deceit. And he knew what she was up to. See, I see this as Wolf's kind of and this is metatextual because I've read a lot of Wolf and this is kind of Wolf's old friendly man uh-huh. kind of character yeah um, so, which is often a, not a character capable of deceit at least on purpose yeah that's interesting yeah because i i definitely thought that he was onto her and that when he says well you've just now taught me some humility he meant it as kind of like a it was a, a snide remark of saying that you've you've shown me you've shown me a, an ugly truth about the world there is Definitely a dig he gives her because he says, it was taught to me by a child. God wants me to learn these. And he used a child to teach me, as is so often the case, or something very close to that. And that's definitely, I mean, a reading where he's not being genuine. He's saying, like, you're a child. Yeah. And so I took that to me. I took this as something of an indicator that, that the Pope is reading the situation as that there are, there are greater forces at work here, that this is really all going to be about leading people away from the rampant materialism and consumerism that is plaguing both the Soviet, the Russian socialists and the American capitalists, that they all basically have the same virtue system, the same value system, and that what everybody needs actually is some humility, some reminder that none of that, none of, none of these possessions, none of these status symbols matter. The, the only thing that matters is mercy and, and that, we're now going to be where we are now with the reinstitution of slavery around the globe. We are all going to be reminded of this fact and that ultimately this is going to turn out to be a good thing for perhaps not the bodies of humans, but the souls of humans. Well, there's a a great tradition in late 20th century theological writings about peaceableness and peace. You have writers like Stanley Hauerwas or, um, there's the Niebuhr brothers yeah, that's what I was thinking. who had a great debate about whether or not the U.S. should engage in World War II at all. And Wolf here is operating on those same themes of like, what are we always fighting for? And the core of this goes back to Nietzsche's oft quoted <laughs> and completely quoted notion about the abyss staring back into you. Um, This is something John le Carr brings up in his great smiley novels um, (laughs) about how these spies, like they're all the same. They're all just playing a game. And the the cost of the game is extraordinary. But what's the difference, um, like George Smiley thinks, between 
the British government and the Russian government, really, at the end of the day? What, what are they doing that's really different from one another? How they're operating as governments? And here we have this question raised in 1970 um, by Gene Wolfe in this story. Like, we are spending far too much time engaging with our enemies that we are beginning to look more like them every day. This is a major concern of post-World War II 20th century theology and philosophy. And I think Wolf is right right on in playing with those themes in this story. Yeah, and I think, again, just like we were when we were talking about whether or not he had some kind of economic system alternative to that, I think, again, we're seeing him suggest that the, the, the only way out is to step aside and 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 the side you should step to is the the right the right hand of Christ. You should become a martyr. You should be willing to become a martyr in some way. It doesn't mean dying necessarily, but consider the psychological cost of loss of status. Um, and this is pre Carter, you know, when there was like a major collapse in Amer- in the American economy in the 1970s. This is still at the height of America's productivity and post-war glory um, that he's writing this, that's saying, like, we need to think about the cost that, what was the cost that brought us this status as a nation? And now that we're bringing up against one another as neighbors, well, you, uh, we read a story recently, Paul's Treehouse, about, like, the neighbors, and that's all about status, and neighbors competing for status. And I think Wolf sees this as genuinely destructive to a civil society. Yeah, I think that's a that's an, a, a genuinely astute and a, actually rather rather brilliant reading of this text, Brandon. I appreciate you uh, sharing that with with me and and with the Wolfpack. <laughs> well, thanks, Glenn. <laughs> well, on that note, Brandon, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us in our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the, the Pope's decision here. And, you know, also, uh, if I'm a crazy person, or perhaps if you agree with me that Ms. Bushnan is indeed the Virgin Mary. Next time, we'll be covering the story of Relays and Roses, which you can find in the collection Castle of Days. Until then, we greet you and we say farewell. Farewell.